Welcome to Music Ed Talk. I'm so excited today to be highlighting the research of two phenomenal music educators, Dr. Rachel Smith and Dr. Jacqueline Secoy, who co-published an article in 2019 titled Exploring the Music Identity Development of Elementary Education Majors Using Ukulele and YouTube. I believe from their findings, there's so much knowledge you can use within your own classroom. But before we dive in, I want to give them each a chance to tell us a little bit about themselves. So um, my name is Jackie Secoy, as Kim said, and I've been teaching at Longwood University for five years. I'm the music education um, professor there, and I'm also the music ed program coordinator. Um, I have gotten a chance to do research related to how people learn music, specifically informal music learning. And this study that Kim is talking about, we looked at ukulele and how that was used to um, kind of how that affects musician identity development. So um, giving us a chance to, to look at that in a different way. Um, and before that, I taught public school for 10 years, teaching fourth through eighth grade general music, beginning band, and guitar. And I'm Rachel Smith. I met Jackie in graduate school. So we were PhD students together at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and we actually shared an office there for a year. Um, so we, we got to work on some research while we were in graduate school, and then we really enjoyed um, riding together since we graduated. I teach at East Carolina University. It's my eighth year there on the music ed faculty and I teach general music courses. So music for everybody. My students are, um, I prepare them to teach anyone from preschoolers to folks in their eighties um, and working with people in nursing homes. So um, we do music across the lifespan. Um, I'm a new mom. I have a, a seven month or an eight month old now. Congrats. Um, yeah, thank you. So I'm kind of getting used to, to teaching music and, and being a new mom at the same time now. So what all inspired you to even delve into this research topic? So that kind of started a little bit. We were teaching a similar course at our different universities. And in fact, it's a course that we had both taught as graduate students at UNCG. And it was a course called Music for the Classroom Teacher. And these were students who were interested in being elementary educators, not, not music educators, but elementary educators. And we just noticed after teaching that for several semesters that the students kind of had this nervousness and sometimes fear about making music that came from their experiences in their elementary and middle school and sometimes high school years. But a lot of them had sort of discontinued music at some point. And we were really concerned about that. And we thought, you know, what is it that's really creating this fear or, you know, um, just prohibiting them from taking music. But meanwhile, they had to take this music class. So we were just really interested to learn more about that, how they developed their own musician identity and um, how we could maybe do some different things in our classes that would make them feel more comfortable and maybe, um, make some progress through their own identity development. And this was also based on some research that Rachel had done with her dissertation too. Yeah, absolutely. So I looked at, in my dissertation research, a course at Appalachian State University for um, elementary ed majors. And so the folks that were taking this class were learning to, to really make music through improvisation. 
And one of the things that I found is they kept talking about musical people take risks. People who are musicians are people that that are comfortable with risk taking and are comfortable putting themselves out there in unfamiliar environments and making music in ways that maybe they haven't made in the past. And so that was different than uh, at the beginning of the semester when they came into this course, they really thought being a musical person was you had to have taken lessons for your entire life to make music. Um, so it was the shift in identity that they had over the course of the semester after they had been in these improv groups that they had, they realized that no, you know, it's not really about your formal training. It's about how much, how are you willing to be vulnerable? How are you willing to put yourself out there and be um, in a space that might be new and try something different? Um, so we, we decided that we really could do this through ukulele, Jackie and I, and she's done a lot of research with ukulele and looking at another professor, Dr. Sandra Teglis, um, who was teaching at UNC Greensboro at the time um, in a ukulele club. And she found some similar things in that study with Sandra, um, that there were some things that made people think that they own this the idea of being a musician, whether they were a young child or whether they were an adult. Um, they could feel ownership in their ability to be musical. Um, and, it, and a lot of that's dependent on the way we set up a classroom environment and the way that we can build community. Um, so we, we found that in, in our study um, uh, that we published in 2019 as well. Were there any fears noted from any of these edu future educators about maybe experiences in their life that made them not see themselves as musicians? Yeah, we got lots of stories that, you know, just kind of informally students would talk about sometimes in the classroom, but, you know, they would pinpoint situations in a classroom where it could be like explicit, where a teacher just said, you know, mouth the words instead of singing because uh, maybe they were making a wrong sound or wrong note at the wrong time. So the teacher just kind of told them not to make any sound. Or it could have been something a little bit less obvious where they noticed other people were getting attention musically. Maybe it was a sibling, maybe it was a friend, something like that, where they just thought, well, I'm not getting picked for this. I must not be any good at this or I can't do this. So it was kind of like an all or nothing thinking. But, um, you know, we were hearing that in kind of different variations throughout our classes too. Rachel, I don't know if you had any other examples. Yeah, absolutely. Um, assi an assignment that we've always had students do is this musical autobiography assignment where they write about their past experiences in music. And so this story that kept coming up semester after semester would be this, um, students would remember a talent show <laughs> that they participated in in elementary school. And it went one of two ways. Either they were the shining star of this talent show and all of the parents were just thought they were the best person ever and they they sang this solo in front of the whole school and it was magical and right then they knew they were going to be a musician or they would have another experience where maybe they they realized that everyone else was really brave and could stand up there at the talent show and sing by themselves and they were the kid that that maybe went to the audition and got scared and started shaking and was nervous and everyone laughed. And then they decided right then and there that being a musician was not something that they wanted to do. Um, so I kept seeing this talent show story play out over and over across. I think I'm, this is the ninth year I've taught this class. Um, and it would, it would, 
seriously go one or two ways when they would talk about the talent show it would either be a really good experience or it would be a negative experience so so we thought there's got to be something to that you know and so in um that that's one of the stories that we just kind of heard played out over and over were there any aspects of the ukulele that made you all think this is the best tool to help students find their musical identity with uh, definitely. I think, um, you know, we had both been teaching for a while before we were introduced to the ukulele. And what I started to notice just kind of right away was that people were not afraid of this instrument. They weren't afraid to pick it up. They weren't afraid to try to play it. They weren't afraid of interacting with it. Um, whereas I did see sort of a reservation or a concern every time, you know, there was a saxophone or a piano or these, these instruments that are kind of thought of in this sort of formal realm, like you have to have lessons for them and you have to study for years and years and years, all this kind of like backstory to them, but ukulele didn't seem to have that. And so I just, I was noticing, you know, people were just smiling and laughing and having a good time. And the pressure seemed to be less. They just seemed to want to have a really fun time. And it didn't matter so much about the wrong notes or playing the wrong chord or any of that just didn't seem to matter as much. And so there just seemed to be something more approachable about the instrument. And I saw this with different age groups groups, with little kids, with, uh, you know, adults in their 70s, and uh, with everything in between, college students, they just seem to have, uh, they were like, well, this is something I can do, I can approach this instrument. And so it just seemed like, you know, and, and musically speaking, educationally speaking, there's, you know, compared to the guitar, only four strings, much easier chord shapes, the strings are nylon, on, they're affordable. So all of those kind of things, when you're thinking about using an instrument with your classes, you know, is it affordable? Can the students be successful quickly on it? And it kind of ticked off all those boxes. Um, and I had taught guitar, guitar classes before that. And some of the things that were students struggle with, like their hands would get so sore from the strings, the instrument was so big for their little hands. And, and vice versa, for, for older adults, they might have arthritis or difficulty holding a guitar, but not a ukulele. So there were just some things about it that sort of, you know, when I'm looking about what do I want to use, it kind of had all of those things with it. So Rachel, I don't know if you had other things. Yeah, when I first started teaching this course, and I would tell people, you know, I'm teaching the one class that you take as an elementary ed major for to, you know, that gives you your introduction to music people would say, Oh, I took that class. We played the recorder. And I was, I was like, Oh, they'd be like, it was horrible. The, the recorder, it was just, I was so bad at the recorder. Or they would tell me I haven't played the recorder since third grade. And they come in on the first day and be like, well, I know we're going to play the recorder in this class, but I haven't played it in a long time. And I'm like, no, we're not going to play a recorder. And I would see their face just all of a sudden like, Oh, Thank God we're not playing the recorder because they they're playing an instrument that Eddie Vedder plays an instrument that's used in pop music all the time now. Um, and so it kind of had this resurgence in a way that it's become hip again. And you clearly kind of gone through this where it becomes popular in pop culture and then it goes out of fashion for a while and then it becomes popular again. And we're in this resurgence where ukulele sales are really through the roof. Um, when you look at what is the number one selling instrument, it's guitar, right? Guitar is the number one selling instrument. Guitars 
also keyboards and ukuleles are really making a comeback in terms of who is purchasing instruments and what in instruments people are purchasing. So it's an instrument that that folks want to play. They want to learn. They learn themselves on YouTube or from their friends informally. And so it works well in an elementary ed class. How was this research conducted? So we did this over in two universities. So I had students I was working with and, and um, participants and Rachel had some at East Carolina. So we had some at Longwood, some at East Carolina. Um, we were we had to be really thoughtful about how we collected our data because we were the instructors of record. So that um, requires us to do a few different things. So we didn't we weren't able to know who was in the study as we were conducting it. Um, we had participants that, you know, agreed to do it. They signed the forms, but we didn't get to know who they were until they, um, all the data had been collected. So that was a really interesting kind of experience, but something that we had to do to make sure that they were protected and felt safe to participate as freely as possible. Um, and we um, did this over a semester and collected um, data throughout the semester. And we did a final focus group at the very end of the semester. We each did this with our groups. And then we took that data and we looked at it together, uh, well, separately first, and then looked for common themes throughout. So um, this is qualitative research. Yeah. Then the thing that Jackie and I, I think both really enjoy about qualitative research is that it, it really tells a story and, and we get to focus on our participants stories and, and, and our, the way that we wrote this up, we looked at their past selves and who they envision their selves to be in the future. And so we got to tell the story of maybe who they were in before they came into this music class and how they saw themselves as a musical person. And then we got to tell the story of where they think they could go as a musical person, where do they envision themselves in the future? Um, and that, I think that's the beauty of qualitative research is it's, it's really interesting to me to see it through the lens of these participants in a way of how they see their lives as a musician. What did instruction center on within the classroom? Were the students focused on learning songs through YouTube, ukulele chords, or melody or melodies? How did you all approach the instruction of the ukulele with these elementary educators? So the way I start with them is um, we don't look at anything first. We just play the instrument um, and we learn, you know, we orient to it. We learn how to tune it. We learn how to play a few chords. We also learn the C pentatonic scale. So we, we just kind of are using the instrument. Um, and that seems most comfortable for them to start with, because once you add in something that they have to look at, that's a whole other skill set. So they get a lot of time at first, just kind of working with and looking at their hands. Um, I use a, I use a sticker system that shows where the pentatonic scale is. So they know where to put their fingers, they know where those notes are, and they get used to that. Um, so we start that way. And then um, I have some things that I learned through the James Hill Ukulele Initiative courses and, and books as well, where they kind of start with melody playing first with that pentatonic scale. And then we add in simple chords with that. 
and kind of layer those things together eventually in, in a few songs from that method. Um, and then we do some, you know, pop tunes and things like that. So at the time we did this study, um, I wasn't using as many play alongs. Um, I'm using a lot more YouTube play alongs now than I was then. Um, and there's just because there's more of them, there's better quality, but also that's the age we're living in right now. So at the time of the study though, there was more um, kind of, uh, lead sheets and those kinds of things that I eventually introduced to them. Um, there's always singing as well. We're constantly singing the pitches. We sing along as we play. Um, and, and that's always phased in throughout. And that's often the hardest thing for them is to actually use their voice um, unless they have been a singer previously in choir or something like that. But even then, once they start doing something with their hands, their voice usually disappears for a while until they're comfortable. So that's, that's kind of how I um, formatted in my class. And I, I do a lot of similar things to Jackie. We um, start with one chord songs. And so we do an open C6 chord and then we do just the C major chord and we play lots of just one chord songs until everyone gets really comfortable singing and playing. Um, one thing I've done and that seems to work really well is have half the class drum the chord at first while the other half just focuses on singing and then we'll switch. And so that way you can have a really confident group of singers that aren't really focusing as much on playing the chord. And then you'll have another group that's really focusing on just keeping that steady beat and playing all four strings and getting a nice full sound. Um, and that seems to work well. And when we switch to two chord songs, maybe we do um, F and C7, and we do a couple of tunes with just F and C7, then we do the same thing where half the room plays the chords and half the room um, sings. I also do a lot of teaching with my body. So I'll, you know, show if I'm doing F and C7, then I'll be on one side of the room for F. And then when it's their turn to transition to the C7 chord, I'll move my body really far to the other side, or I'll do something to show that we're moving two chords. And that can be done without anything on the board. If you're doing a simple song where everyone knows the words, it's a two chord song, um, then you can just, you don't even have to have anything projected to do that. Um, so yeah, I do a lot of, um, at first teaching without notation at all. I mean, we never really use notation. We use chord charts, but at first I don't even use the chord charts. Instead, I focus on just getting them comfortable making a sound and getting them comfortable singing. What attitudes and environment do you think is best conducive for elementary educators to feel successful playing these instruments? Or how do you set up this environment in the classroom? Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, I think it's the most important thing, actually. Um, they have to trust that you're not going to, you know, dress them down, right? They're, you're not going to say these horrible things to them that they think will happen, right? If you see them making a mistake, they want to know that you're not going to come right at them, that you're not going to single them out. Those kind of things, they they expect to happen. It's interesting because um, even students who are comfortable making music still have this idea that someone is going to be looking out for their mistakes and is going to point it out in front of everybody. There's just sort of this fear. So um, you have to really over time gain their trust by 
constantly encouraging them, constantly praising when they are singing, when they are playing, when they are doing things, instead of ever pointing out anybody's specific mistake because, and normalizing mistakes. So if I make one, I make a big deal out of it, or I joke about it and I'm laughing about it because you know, if they see me doing that, well, then it's okay if they do it too. It doesn't have to be so serious all the time. It's supposed to be fun. And so you have, there's a lot of modeling that goes into that from, from me and from Rachel too, right? When we're teaching our classes that this is what it looks like. This is how it's always going to go. And I always tell them up front, and I have to say it many times, is that you're never going to hear me say, don't sing. You're always going to hear me say, sing, sing loud. And it doesn't, a friend of ours always says, it doesn't have to be good. It just has to be loud, right? Because once it's loud, and it's going to feel really loud to the student when it might just be, you know, just medium level, it's going to be better every time. And it takes a long time for them to trust that that's true. But, you know, usually about the midway of the semester, I can feel and see that they're becoming a little bit more risk-taking. They want to try things a little bit more. They're a little bit like more excited to volunteer and feeling a little bit safer and more confident. So I think that, you know, the way that you set up your classroom and the environment, right, physically, but also really just the um, kind of feeling within the classroom is, 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 has to be one of support and encouragement. Yeah, absolutely. And then humor really goes a long way in the classroom. So whenever I do make a mistake, you know, I really try to, to just play around with the idea that we all mess up, you know. Um, another thing that I find often, I'll have classes that are mostly female with only one or two males in it. And so it's hard a lot of times for those guys to sing an octave lower and to realize that they're the only folks in the class singing an octave lower. So I model that all the time. I'll sing in the, the women's octave and then I'll also sing down low in the guy's octave. And I'll laugh about that because they know it's there. They know everyone's listening to that. Those one or two low voices. And so I'll sing with them often. I'll sing with the folks that maybe feel like they're the only, the they're more exposed or more vulnerable. Um, so we, uh, we do also a lot of, um, where we look at our partner's fingers and we play facing each other, but we only do that after we're comfortable singing, right? I would never do that on the first or couple of weeks of class because they're not comfortable singing around each other. But once we get to that place, then we can look, we can sing to our partners and watch and see when they're shifting between that F and C7 chord because they're not so vulnerable and they don't feel so exposed looking at one another while they're singing. Um, Another thing I'll always tell my students is that if you miss a chord, someone else in the classroom of 20 is going to get it. And so even if, you know, collectively 25% of us all mess up at the same time, it's still going to sound great because we got 75% of the classroom that are switching chords at the right time. So I always tell them, you know, somebody's going to get that change and there's enough of us that are going to get it, that it's going to sound all right, which in, in a lot of their music classes, they've been told the opposite, that if one person makes a mistake, we're listening for you. You one person clarinet player in the back row, I heard that, and your parents are going to hear it too. And when they hear it, it's going to be your fault, right? And so we don't want that, right? We want instead to have the, instead of that vulnerability of, oh, I'm the only one that made a mistake, 
you can say, oh, lots of people made that mistake. And it's still recognizable. We still know the tune that we're trying to play. Cool. That's great. After reading your article, what do you think music educators should take away or the biggest takeaways they should have? I think it's important that we're aware of the impact we have as a music educator on the students that we teach. And so we're thinking about these elementary general music courses where, you know, those teachers are seeing, you know, almost everybody or a hundred percent of the student population. And so they can have a very big positive impact or a very big negative impact. So, and, and anywhere in between. And, and, you know, just being aware of the things that you say in the classroom that can inspire students to participate or, or discourage them to, dis, you know, participate. And being aware that we as the teachers, we do have a lot of ability to make that environment inclusive and empower the students to participate and feel really safe with that. And, you know, being able to make mistakes is just part of the process. It's not a special moment to make a mistake, right? It's not this big giant mistake that's always gonna last your whole life. It's, it's, it's norm, it needs to be normalized. And so hopefully when, you know, music educators are reading this, they can kind of look at their own practice and say, am I being as inclusive as I could be? Are there other ways that I could do that? Um, and, and what might that look like in, in my own classroom, right? Because every environment is different. Everybody's facing different challenges, has different types of things they have to think about. They may not have the resources, uh, right? Or, or being concerned about using ukulele at all. And this could maybe give some examples of how it could be used with elementary, but also older people too, and, and how that might look in their classroom and the benefits of using that within your music classroom. So I think those are a couple of takeaways um, that, you know, kind of going forward, we hope that music educators will just sort of be reflective about their practice and what they can do to include as many students as possible. Absolutely. So what Jackie and I really want is to build this culture of amateurism and music ed and to where where amateurism is seen as a great thing because most of our students who graduate from music ed uh, 12th grade, and maybe they've participated in music their entire life, they're not going to go on to be professional musicians, but we do want these folks to go on and, and to make music for fun. And when we're teaching these classes to elementary ed majors, that's what we're hoping to build because when an elementary teacher tells their students, I can't carry a tune in a bucket, then that, that tells that kid, well, my, my teacher, I really respect this person and she doesn't sing for fun. So why should I, or why should I keep doing music if my teacher doesn't do it now? What we want is for this idea of music making to be for everyone, that you don't have to be a professional, that you don't have to be the best at something to, to enjoy it and for it to make a difference in your lives and in your, in your community. Thank you, Dr. Sikoy, and thank you, Dr. Smith, for taking the time and joining me in this episode to explore your research. I hope all listeners at home were able to walk away with some great strategies on how to create an open and non-judgmental environment to foster discovery of musical identities within your classroom. Please tune in for the next episode of Music Ed Talk. Thank you all again. Music Ed Talk. Music Ed Talk.